Please be seated. Good morning again. We get to dive into this brand new series called Heaven and Hell. Uh, so many of you have, have been asking me recently, hey, let's talk about the book of Revelation. Well, we're going to dive in there a little bit through this series. Uh, I don't know why anybody would be infatuated with the book of Revelation. I know it's in the Bible. Uh, I do know that, and it's an important book. Uh, but, it's, but there's a lot of uh, doom and despair in there. And uh, through this series, there's a lot that it has to say to us about life and death. But Revelation is not the only book in the Bible that talks about this. It's all the way through. So it's only fitting that we start this kind of a dialogue on October 31st. Today is October 31st. And in order to start it off with a kick, we are going to start off not with heaven, but with Hell. We're going to be talking a little bit about hell today and also next Sunday. And you will be amazed. I, 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 I would almost, if I, if I were allowed to bet as a pastor, I would put money on the table uh, that you are going to learn some new things through this series as we go through. I have already, as, uh, as I've done study with these other pastors that I meet with before we go through the series, I've already learned and been reminded of some pretty amazing ideas as we, um, as we study on one, what happens after, after we die. October 31st is an interesting day to get to start this on, and so I thought I'd start off with a little bit of how our world is infatuated with death. Uh, do you feel like it's more infatuated with death than it has been in the past? Do you feel like that? Or do you, do you, do you feel it's kind of all, always been this way? Or maybe we're just getting older and grumpier and crankier and uh, get off my lawn, I'm not giving you any candy. I don't know. Maybe that's you. But I, I feel like there's almost a little bit more of an infatuation with what happens after we die and especially with the, an infatuation over death. So this holiday is built on, on, on this idea. And so if you, if you want a little bit of background on Halloween, how would you like a little bit of background on Halloween? Nobody cares. Okay. So Halloween is actually, uh, we find some of its original roots from a Celtic celebration called Samhain. It's not, pronounced, it's not written that way. It's called S-A-M-H-A-I-N. And if you look online, you'll find that people still celebrate Samhain. Uh, you don't have to be um, Scottish to do this. This actually is celebrated around the world. But this started like 3,000 years ago. And the day marked the end of the summer, the harvest, and the beginning of the dark, cold winter, and so it often became associated with death. Celts believed that this night, the world, the earth, had a very thin veil between life and death. And they believed that October 31st was the day that the, the dead would come back and visit their loved ones. Uh, that the death, the dead ones would return uh, to earth. And so, in order to keep away the bad spirits and to only get the good spirits, they would do bonfires and they would, they would dress up and they would, uh, they would celebrate this night as if it were the, the thin veil between life and death. Now, when the Romans conquered the Celts, they incorporated some of these practices into their own systems. And the Holy Roman Empire was not holy, it was not Roman, and it was not an empire, but the Holy Roman Empire often would take, church, the church would take these, these celebrations of the lands that they, that they would conquer, and they would incorporate them into the practices of the church. Sowin was one of the practices that they tried to incorporate. Around 650 AD, Pope Gregory III redefine the festival to include all the saints and all the martyrs. So to get away from the, the dead coming back, but to celebrate saints who have died and martyrs who have died for the gospel. 
and they moved the day to November the 1st instead of October 31st. And they even renamed it, they called it All Souls Day. So the church celebrated this very interestingly, similarly to the way that they celebrated sewing. There would be big, big bonfires, there would be parades, and they would dress in, in, in costumes like angels and, and saints, some of the saints that had gone before. Like, you ever, can you imagine dressing up as a saint? But they did back then, and they would go, oh, you're Saint Isidore, whatever it is. And they, they would know that. I don't think we would know that today. But <coughs> you, you'd know uh, Deville, Corella Deville, wouldn't you? Yeah, everybody would know that. All Souls Day was celebrated by only a few of the early American settlers. When they came here from, uh, from the old country, they only, only a few of them celebrated because they were largely uh, given to the gospel and so they wanted to get rid of all of that, uh, that stuff that dealt with life after death that was not based on the gospels. Uh, but as more settlers arrived, as these different uh, groups came over, Sowin began to be celebrated again, again, not Sowin, now it was called All Saints Day, and they would celebrate it and call it All Hallows Day or All Hallows Mass. So they wanted to keep a little bit of the, the Christian tradition in there, that's an English term. Uh, and eventually, they celebrated it the night before, which was the uh, eve of All Hallows Mass, and so it became known as Halloween. And that's how we got into Halloween. People have always struggled with the question, what happens after you die? It seems like every culture, if you're a, if you're a historian, you know this, every culture has their own system of beliefs, and it doesn't matter how far back in history you go, there's a, their own system of beliefs about a certain way that people have life after death. Uh, this, this one goes back 3,000 years, uh, but... It's interesting to know that even in South America, which was not connected to the old country at all, origins from the Aztecs also dated back 3,000 years ago when they celebrated a day when the dead visited the living. So it's interesting, even in South America, uh, what we know as, as South America today, when the Aztecs in Central, Central and South America, when they started um, celebrating festivals, this was one of the festivals that they celebrated. And guess which day they celebrated it on? November the 1st and November the 2nd. And eventually it became known as the Day of the Dead. And this is where uh, the Mexican uh, folks get their celebration from. They celebrate on November the 1st and the 2nd. The first day the children who have been dead come back to visit. And the second day the adults who have been dead come back to visit. It's not a scary time, although they dress up in some pretty interesting uh, costumes, but all of their costumes, if you look at them carefully, are all colorful because it's meant to be a celebration. Even though it deals with death, uh, they cook food for their loved ones. They cook their, their loved ones' favorite foods, and even though they have skulls, they're made out of candy, you can eat them. And so it's, it's an interesting concept that even originated from the Aztecs that we even celebrate today in some cultures called the Day of the Dead. And you're thinking to yourself, well, Craig, that's all old stuff and we've gone beyond that. You ever been to a funeral? I mean, we do our own thing, right? When somebody dies, what do we do? We dress them up as nice as we can. We put makeup on them. We put a nice suit or a nice dress on them. Whatever we do, we leave them out, and people can come in and see them and say, they look so good when they don't. They're not meant to look like that at all. But we do the same thing. We, do, we, we celebrate 
death in our own way. And then afterwards, I've done enough funerals to know, uh, afterwards we often have this big potluck and we celebrate the life of the person who has gone on and who has passed. We are a people, the human race is a people who are infatuated with what happens one minute after we die. And with the fact that death always wins. But we've got to find a way that we can struggle and we can live with that concept. And so we invent these ways of, uh, of doing this. And today being October 31st is a celebration of that very thing. People have always struggled with the question, what happens one minute after you die? I want to tell you, this is probably one of the top three reasons the church exists. The church exists for the sole purpose of preparing people for the day they die. Do you ever think of it that way? I mean, you're going to die. Unless Jesus comes, you, your, your time is limited, right? And, and I, I had this conversation with my kids this week, and, and we talked about uh, <laughs> them growing up. And, and I said, you know, in reality, you're kind of already dying. And Beth said, no, 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 they're, they're growing, they're, they're getting to their best days, and they're only getting better with time. But give it enough time, and eventually that, that bell curve happens, right? And you start going down, down the slope. The second law of thermodynamics catches up with all of us. You can put a hot cup of coffee on the, on the counter, but a half hour later, it's not hot anymore. It turns cold. Everything disintegrates. Everything breaks down, including us. Jesus knows this, and that's why in the Bible, there are over 80 references to heaven or eternal life. In the scripture, there are almost 80 references and there are 160 references to hell alone. Now, does that strike you as odd? If you're kind of wondering about this, there are 160 references to hell or the abyss or Gehenna. We'll talk about those terms over the next couple of Sundays. But you need to know half of them almost half of them, 70 of these references were made by Jesus Christ himself. So whenever you hear Jesus talk, he's usually talking most of the time about heaven or hell. And more time about hell than about heaven. He taught of hell more than any other person in scripture. He says it's a place of eternal torment in Luke 16. He says it's a place of unquenchable fire in Mark 9. He says it's a place where the worm doesn't die in Mark 9. He says it's where people gnash their teeth in anguish in Matthew 13. He says it's a place from which there's no return, Luke chapter 16. He says it's a place of constant darkness, Matthew 25. He even compares it to a continual bonfire, a continual uh, uh, fire that burns outside the city of Jerusalem called Gehenna, where they threw all their trash and, and fire burned there cons- consistently. He compared hell to that place in Matthew chapter 10. In fact, Jesus describes hell far more than he describes heaven. Does that strike anybody as weird? You'd think Jesus being in heaven <laughs> would want to tell us about the place he goes to prepare for us, right? Tell us about heaven. My wife would always say, I don't want to hear about the bad stuff. I just want to hear about the good stuff. Talk more about heaven. She'd correct Jesus on this one. But it's interesting that in scripture, Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. Why does he do that? Because church and those of you that are online, you only have one destination or the other. There's only two options. 
It's like living in America. It's only Republican and Democrat. You only have two options. No, I'm just kidding. There's only two options. You have heaven or you have hell. There's no other options. I know you have independence too. But in Scripture, when Jesus talks about heaven and hell, he does so because he wants us to know there's only two options. Erwin Lutzer says it this way. One minute after you die, you will either be elated or terrified. My go-to verse for this passage this morning, or for this message this morning, is actually a story from Jesus himself, where he was nailed on the cross between two thieves. On the day of their death, all three would die. Two thieves and one Messiah. The thieves are on either side of Jesus, so they're within earshot. I often think that's pretty cool. Like it's not Jesus and then two other thieves. It's the two other thieves on both sides of Jesus. I think that's mercy. Here's why. One thief was obstinate, unrepentant, and hateful. The other thief was broken, desperate, and willing to consider his options. I take you in your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. If you're using your Bibles this morning or your devices, Luke chapter 23, this is the incident of Jesus' death on the cross between the two thieves. And you'll find out why I'm taking you here in about two seconds. One of the criminals who were hanging railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. We'll call this Jim. If your name is Jim, my con condolences for using your name for this, all right? But we'll call this first guy Jim. Jim is obstinate. Jim has lived a life of crime. Jim does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Jim couldn't care less. Jim is full of hate. These buggers that nailed him to the cross should pay. So he's angry, he's hateful, he's dying, and he doesn't deserve it. So he picks on the guy in the middle because everybody else is picking on the guy in the middle. People at the foot of the cross are screaming. <clears throat> you can read this in the context. They're screaming at Jesus saying, hey, you're the Messiah. Why don't you get yourself down off the cross? He jumps in with them. And he starts mocking Jesus. Don't you feel bad for Jim? Jim's only hope is the guy in the middle. Jim has chosen to mock Jesus Christ. Verse 40, but the other rebuked Jim, rebuked him, saying, I love this. Church, would you say this with me? Here we go. Just say this with me. Do you not fear God? Do you think the other guy had any question as to who Jesus was? He literally starts off the conversation dying, saying, do you not fear God? Now, this has taken a lot of work for him to say this because he's literally suffocating to death. As you're hanging on the cross, you have to push yourself up to get air. He's literally suffocating, and he has enough guts, strength, confidence to say to the other guy, Jim, don't you fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. Jim at this point has to be saying, I'll take you on, man. Come on over here. Say that, to, say that right to my face. He's mocking Jim. Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed get this justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Okay, I read that, and I have to think to myself, this guy has seen Jesus before. Don't you? He's, he's at least heard of Jesus. We can at least say that. Because he's got enough gumption to say, this guy on the other side, maybe he's done jobs with him before. He knows Jim's a bad dude. So he says, Jim, you and I are both here because 
We know who we are. This guy in the middle, he's done nothing wrong. This guy has to know who Jesus is. Maybe he's heard him before. Maybe he's even met him before. There's all kinds of incidences that are not written about in the Gospels. In the last chapter of John, it says, if I could write to you all of the amazing things that happened when Jesus was on the earth, there wouldn't be enough pages to fill. It's in the last book of John. Jesus has met with people, done miracles that we don't know about. Maybe this guy on the cross has been with Jesus before. Maybe they... Maybe through friends they've been introduced. Maybe he's just been curious about Jesus in the past. Maybe he attended one of his, one of his uh, dialogues, one of his sermons somewhere. Maybe he was at the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know, but somehow this guy knew who Jesus was. And he knew who he was. And he said to Jim on the other side, dude, stop messing around. You and I both know who we are. This guy, this guy has done nothing wrong. Verse 42, now here's the kicker. And this thief said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I want you to read this with me, church, because it's really key. Here we go, ready? Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Where would that man be by the end of the day? Uh What happens one minute after you die, church? One destination or the other. There's a couple of things that blow me away here. First of all, what do you think Jesus thought one minute after you die? Do you think Jesus was lying to him? Obviously not, Jesus doesn't lie. Jesus literally thought the minute you breathe your last tear, you wake up somewhere else. Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise. I gotta tell you, <laughs> this, is, this day of his death, This crucifixion, this getting hung up in front of his friends and his neighbors naked in front of them all, dying in front of them all, this is the luckiest day of this guy's life because he got crucified beside Jesus Christ. That's luck, wouldn't you say? (laughs) The other guy. See, it was there, this life of sin, this life of rebellion, this life of obstinance against honesty and truth and righteous living was surrendered to the person in the middle. This is a moment this guy didn't deserve. <laughs> he worked a lifetime at not deserving. And the Son of God turns to him and says, man, you're, you're so lucky you're dying today. You're so lucky you're, you're dying beside me. I'll tell you what, your life went like this, but eternity you'll spend with me. What Jesus did say is as important as what he didn't say. To the repentant thief, he said, I'll see you in a few minutes. What did he say to the other guy? (laughs) Bupkis, nothing. Does that strike you as odd? Both men went somewhere after they died, but only one got the promise that he would be with Jesus Christ. The natural trajectory of our lives will take us in one direction or another, unless Jesus intervenes. Let me say that one more time. The natural trajectory of all of our lives will take us in one direction or another, unless Jesus intervenes. We will continue on the natural trajectory of a rebellious heart, refusing to believe Jesus provides us a way out, and we will land in that path 
that we have been set on. This truth has been in front of our faces for 2,000 years. It's so, it's so obvious. When we are born, we are destined for hell. It's, it's just, it's as obvious as a nose on your face. Let me just ask you, if you're thinking to yourself, well, Craig, nobody believes in heaven. Well, some people believe in heaven, but nobody believes in hell anymore. Okay, all right, so, because we're all good enough to get into heaven, right? That's the natural, I'm not that bad. I'm not as bad as the thief on the cross. Well, he's in heaven, by the way. The other guy's not. But let's take it. Do you need help to learn how to rebel, or do you need help to learn how to obey? Does your child need a class on how to rebel? Or do, does, your, does your child need help on how to obey? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. What is it again? I've had kids. They need no help to figure out how to rebel. It comes au naturel to their psyche. They know how to be selfish. They know how to be obstinate. They know how to be hateful. They know all that. It is built into their DNA. My job as a parent is to get it out of them is to teach them a better way of living, right? Adults, you know this too. Do you know how many people go to classes to learn how to think positively, deal with the difficult things in life, be happy? Do you know, why? Because that does not come natural. That is not on our natural trajectory of life. When somebody hits you in the face, it is not the natural thing to turn the other cheek. True or false? What is the natural thing? Yeah, to hit them back. It is the world in which we live and it comes natural. So instead of fighting against it, some people do and they pay a lot of money to figure out how to, how to fight against it. Instead of fighting against it, what we have become is a world where we have gathered around people that tell us, you know what, that's normal. That's normal. You should behave like that. In fact, you should be more of that because that's who you are and you deserve R-E-S-P-E-C-T and all of that stuff. Listen, we don't need help to learn how to be bad. We need help to change the trajectory of our badness. Jesus came to do that, and it has been in our faces for 2,000 years. Uh, let me take you to the most, most, uh, the most uh, popular verse of Scripture, John 3.16. You remember this? You want to say it together? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Now, take a second and read that verse. Do you see the natural trajectory of your life? You will perish. You are the obstinate thief on the cross. But God sent his son to break the trajectory, the natural trajectory of every life because of his love for you. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. So whosoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. You need to be like Jim. I'm sorry, no, you don't need to be like Jim. You need to be like the other thief on the cross. Jesus came to change the trajectory of our lives. Th this verse is popular, but do you know what the next verse to say right after this? Verse 17 explains it even further. For God did not send his son into the world to what, church? God didn't send Jesus to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus is what? Condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. We are all bound for one destination unless Jesus intervenes. I only picked this verse. There's all kinds of verses that talk like this in Scripture. I only picked this one because it's the most popular one. Everybody knows John 3.16. 
But my question to you today is this. We're all going to die. Our natural trajectory is hell. Jesus has given us a promise of heaven if he intervenes. My question to you is this. What does eternal life look like? What does that look like? What does heaven look like? And what does eternal condemnation look like? This is the journey we're, we're, we're starting on over the next four weeks after this one. And here's the kicker. I'm glad you're sitting down for this. You ready? Here's the kicker. I don't want to go to heaven for eternity. I don't want to go to heaven to eternity. Heaven is never meant as somebody's eternal destination. Did you know that? Not that I want to go to the other place either. But heaven for eternity is not the final chapter of our lives. A lot of times we treat it like a book where we, the, the book has 12 chapters. We stop at chapter 11 because heaven's pretty good, but there's a, there's a 12th chapter. There's a chapter that the church a lot of times doesn't talk about. Heaven was never meant to be our eternal destination. You were not created to go to heaven. One more time, the Bible does not teach that heaven is the eternal destination for those who believe and follow Jesus Christ. We were not created for heaven, we were created for earth. I would venture to say that if you leave off the story of your life at chapter 11, you've left off the best part. Chapter 12 is better than heaven. Let me give you a, a, some background as to what's going on here. Why, why would my pastor say he doesn't want to go to heaven? That's a good question. Uh, it's just to get your juices flowing, but it's true. When God made all things at the beginning, did he make all things physical or spiritual? Easy question. Did he make all things physical or spiritual? Physical. He made heaven, he made earth, he made sun, moon, stars, he made the birds and the trees and he made the, 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 he made the rocks and the hills and he made everything that there is. Everything's physical with a spiritual component but he made everything to exist in a physical way. Creation, because of sin, was ripped apart. When Adam and Eve sinned, did they die? Uh-huh. Did they die? Not right away. But they did die spiritually right away, right? The reason we know they died spiritually right away is because they got kicked out of the physical garden. Spiritually, we know they're dead because at some point in their lives, they are now on a trajectory where they will die and feed the worms. Something happened when they, when they sinned so that they would die, both spiritually and physically. So the answer is yes and no. Yes, they died spiritually immediately. Eventually, they would die physically. At the point of their rebellion, at the point when they introduced sin into God's perfect creation, physical and spiritual were separated. When, when that happens, a division happened between the spiritual and the physical so that 
If Adam and Eve died physically, spiritually, they would continue on. Again, this was never meant to happen. We weren't, we weren't created to die. Death is a result of the fall. For by one man's sin, death entered the world, so death passed to all people because all have what? Death was never meant to happen. Death entered because of sin. And when we die, because God created us with a soul, our spirits, because of sin, separate from our physical bodies. Today, if you die, your body is left behind, but your spirit continues on. Jesus said this at the cross, right? Where did, where did the thief's physical body go after he died? He probably got it burned up. Nobody's gonna take time to bury this guy. So it probably got burned in some ash heap somewhere. But Jesus promised him that he would live that day in paradise with him. True or false? True. His body stays, his spirit separates. Jesus taught this. In the garden, because of the sin of Adam and Eve, sin enters into the world and our body stays, but our, our body stays here on this planet, but our soul continues. After Adam and Eve sinned, they created a reality where the physical and the spiritual would be separated. In order to keep the spiritual body that left our, ever, our, our, our souls that God created us with, because we are his, his pinnacle of creation, in order to hold those souls somewhere, heaven and hell were created. There's different names for these, but, uh, and we'll talk about those over the next few weeks, but ultimately, these two places were created in order to hold our souls. Hell was created out of justice because God is completely just, giving us what we do deserve. Heaven was created out of grace. Grace is giving us what we don't deserve. God's mercy gives us a place called heaven. God's justice gives us a place called the abyss. These places were meant for spirits, not bodies. Heaven and the abyss created for not a physical existence, but a spiritual existence. That's why when you look in the New Testament, the, the people in hell right now that it talks about, the people that are there right now are angels, spiritual beings who have been chained in the abyss because they have not obeyed God's commands. They have fallen and they have uh, fallen with the devil and chosen to side with him. So church, the bottom line is one minute after you die, you will go to heaven or Hades, the abyss, a place of gloomy darkness where spirits, angels, that disobey God are held in chains. But you do not go to heaven for eternity and you do not go to the abyss for eternity. Isn't that crazy? I know. These places were made because of the fall to hold spirits, not bodies. There will come a day when those places will be emptied out and the physical and the spiritual will be reunited and judgment will occur. If you go to the, to the grave of somebody you loved and dig that thing up, you will find their bodies there, but their spirits are elsewhere because we are created as everlasting beings with a soul. Now here's the good news. Jesus has promised that he is coming back. You know this because we say it at every communion service, every single Sunday. As, as long as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes. Jesus is coming back. And when he does, we call that the second coming, the spirits and the bodies are reunited. It's the resurrection. Heaven is not what we long for. What we long for is the day when we get these bodies back. When our spirit becomes one again with our bodies, the way that it was intended to be at the beginning. Sin created the separation. Jesus will give us all of this back. He will renew everything. The resurrection, heaven is not what we long for. It's the resurrection that we long for. Now you may be thinking, oh, Chris, Craig, this is a, I called myself Chris. Uh, You may be thinking to yourself, I do know my own name. Craig, this is the first I've ever heard of this. That's tragic. That's tragic. Because in Scripture, this is the pinnacle of what we look forward to. We don't look forward to heaven. Who wants to be a spirit floating around? I don't, I don't know if they're spiritual trout, but they can't nearly be as fun to catch as physical trout. I want my body. I want a physical trout. I want to stand in a physical stream with a rod, and I want to catch trout for all eternity. That's all I ask for. That's... And maybe worship Jesus for all eternity too. That's important too. This may be the first that you're hearing about this, but if it is, I'm sorry that it is because it's, again, all the way through scripture. This is the reason Jesus rose from the dead. Did you know that? Jesus rose from the dead so that he could show us he was alive. True. But he also rose from the dead and hung around for 50 days so we could see what we will look like when we rise from the dead. Do you ever consider that? He stuck around for 50 days so that he could eat with people, talk with people, have conversations with people, sleep so that he could walk around, so he could walk on the beach, so he could forgive Peter, so that he could, so he could do all these things. He rose from the dead so that people could see this is what we have to look forward to. A body and a spirit joined together finally as one. Jesus did not appear as a spirit. In fact, you remember when he told Thomas? You remember? Thomas said, unless I stick my finger into his side, I won't believe. <laughs> so do you remember when Jesus showed up? He looks at Thomas and he says, uh, Thomas, right here. Right here. Why did he do that? Not so that he could stick a, stick a thumb in Thomas's eye. He didn't do that to show Thomas what a dork he was. He did that so that he could show Thomas, Thomas, brother, you're going to die someday. You're going to heaven. You're going to be separated from your body. But I'm here to tell you, this is what you get back. You get a physical body back. When the spirit and the physical are reunited, we don't look forward to heaven. We look forward to the resurrection. And it's all through scripture. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know what that means? It means that he is the first to get the spirit and the body back so that we could see as believers, we will be like that someday. He is the first fruits of those who sleep. And by the way, the Bible never says that believers die. Did you know that? It always says that followers of Jesus sleep Now, it does not mean soul sleep, but it's an expression to show us, those who follow Jesus Christ, that death is not a reality for us. When we die, our spirits continue in heaven. Today, you will be with me in paradise. And someday, we get our bodies back. 
first fruits of those who sleep. For by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be alive. In fact, the verse before this, verse 19, says if there's no resurrection from the dead, we are to be most pitied of all people. I don't want to be a spirit for all eternity. Do you? Floating around? Blah. Not that I want this back either, but a little, little trim here and a little trim there. <laughs> this verse says, if you're in Adam's line, you die. Right? As in Adam, all die. If you're in Adam's line, you die. Who's in Adam's line here? Raise your hand. Everybody put up your hands. Every one of us is in Adam's line. But if you're in Christ's line, you will live. Only a few chose that line. Denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ is poison to the soul because it, 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 it does not celebrate the fact that we will be like him someday. <laughs> Physical and the spiritual together again. We'll talk more about this in the weeks to come. You're going to enjoy this, I think. But the bottom line for today is simply this. At the garden, there was a separation of the spiritual and the physical. Eternity is the, is the reconstruction is the restoration of the spiritual and the physical. You get your body back. (laughs) Not only that, you get to live on a planet where there's no sin. You couldn't sin if you wanted to. Isn't that great? Jesus has the keys to death and Hades. He unlocks them, he judges, and then he sends souls to be with their bodies in an eternal and physical place. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this. I'm going to give you tons of scripture as we go through this. And I'm giving you, I know a lot this morning. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Let me just clarify that. There's not a balance saying, oh, your good outweighs your bad. That's not what that says. What that says is good is what's done for Jesus. Good Good is what you do for Jesus Christ. You do good for any other reason, it doesn't last. The only good that counts is what's done for Jesus. And the emphasis is not doing good out of a desire to please ourselves or other people. The desire is to do good to glorify Jesus Christ. We're judged by our works on that simple principle. Have Have you lived your life for Jesus? Are you a follower of Jesus? No amount of good works will ever get anybody into heaven or into paradise. Revelation 20, 13 says this, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, spirits, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. The death, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Anyone's name that was not written and found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Final resurrection is at the coming of Jesus Christ, and this is why we celebrated every communion service. Here's three so watch. Number one, When you die, your eternal destiny is set. There's no diverging from your path. If you don't accept Christ as your Savior, you're on the path that you were born on. Hebrews 9.27, just as is appointed for man once to die, and after that comes the judgment. One minute after you die, believers, one minute after you die, you will know exactly where you are, and you will see Jesus right away. Isn't that cool? One minute after you die, believers, you will know exactly where you are and you will see Jesus right away. How do you think, how do you think the guy on the cross felt when he died there 
and he woke up in paradise. And he sees Jesus there. Non-follower of Jesus, to the thieves on the other side, one minute after you die, you will know exactly where you are and you will be immediately filled with dread. Jesus is the only one that provides a diversion from our natural, eternal destination. The thief on the cross was made that promise. Jesus himself spoke about this truth. Jesus told Lazarus' sister, when Lazarus died and his sister, his sister uh, found Jesus and said, Jesus, if you hadn't been here, you could have healed him. He, he, he could have lived. And Jesus says to her in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Is there any confusion on this? The only thing that can diverge you off the natural path of your life is Jesus Christ. I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said in himself, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And anyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then she said to, to Lazarus' sister, don't you believe this? Natural trajectory of our lives. Jesus is the only one that can switch that natural trajectory. Number two, you were not made for eternity in hell or heaven. <laughs> you were made to enjoy God forever, but sin ruined that. There's an eternal place of torment Jesus warns us about over 160 times. More on that in the weeks to come. But Jesus has provided a way so that we could change the trajectory of our lives and we could be with him for eternity. Not necessarily as a spirit, but as a body, enjoying food and walking around and having conversations. You're going you're gonna to love what the resurrected body looks like. We're going to talk about a, lot of, a lot about this. You were made to have a physical and spiritual body together for eternity, and eventually that, were, that will happen. We will be raised as Jesus was raised from the dead. Some will be raised to life with Jesus, and some will be raised to judgment. Think of it this way. Everything ends like it began. When Jesus created everything in the beginning, God was in charge. There was no sin. It was paradise. It was, it was, it was, it was literally the place to be. Humans had the ability to sin, and obviously they chose that. Given enough time, they chose that. But everything at the beginning had had um, uh, um, it was a system where God was in control. It was made as it was intended to be. At the end of all time, it will be restored to that version of things. God is in control. No sin. Perfect peace. Which brings me to my third point, and that is this. Trust in Jesus before your destiny is unchangeable. This is the hard thing to, to talk about in this day and age when people have a hard time believing in the devil, much less hell. But we live in a world where this is still a reality. God has not changed his word. There is a destination for every soul. Every person that is created is created with a soul that will continue after they die. And then they will be raised to be reunited with their body once and for all. Some to judgment and some to eternal life with Jesus. I love that God is merciful. He doesn't hold this information back. He talks about it all the time and offers us a way out. And he makes it very accessible to whoever, whoever desires to follow Jesus Christ. But he is just as just, equally as just as he is merciful. 
If people work toward rebellion their whole lives, they will live in rebellion for all eternity. And he is consistent. It has been this way since the beginning of time. He's either telling us the truth or he's lying about us. And if he's telling us the truth, it's for a reason. Because the rewards of eternity far outweigh the challenges of these days, these present days. So my last word to you is simply this. Trust Jesus and change the trajectory of your natural path. Because if Jesus doesn't intervene, your soul, your spirit will continue somewhere. I think that's why Jesus talks more about hell than he does about heaven. Because he loves us. If your child was going to a destination and you knew that destination was questionable at best, and you knew the minute they got to that destination they would be in danger, your child, would you give them the keys to your car? Would you provide them a path to that destination, an atlas, Google Maps? Or would you warn them constantly, don't go there. You don't want to be there. Bad things await you there. For God's sake, do not make this choice. God loves you far more than you love your children. I think that's why Jesus warned us more about hell than he told us of the blessings of heaven. Make your decision today before your eternal destination is set in stone. Father, I'm grateful for our time this morning. It's, it's a heavy topic. It's exciting for those of us that are believers because you yourself have promised us an incredible eternity. I'm anxious to get to that point and start talking about what that's going to look like. But you, more than that, warned us about the destination that every one of us is already on, the path that leads us to that destination that we've already ventured onto. Sometimes I think we should talk about this a lot more than we do. Thank you, Father, for rescuing the, the souls that you rescue and for those that are watching online or maybe in-house today that, that have not bowed their knee to you, that don't want to follow you, that are still living in rebellion to you, that are like the thief on the cross, obstinate, questions overrule their ability to surrender. All the obstacles that Satan throws into our path to keep us from believing the, the clear truth that you love the world so much that you gave your only son that whoever believes in you would never perish but have eternal life. May that be the mantra that we preach here in this church until our dying day. <laughs> and through us, Lord, may you rescue souls, more and more and more and more souls, so that one day they can enjoy paradise with us and with you. I pray in Jesus' name.